Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. A few weeks ago, we had an episode on the 200th anniversary of McCullough versus Maryland, the Supreme Court's famous decision affirming the constitutionality of the Bank of the United States. We were joined by AEI's Gary Schmidt and George Mason University's Nelson Lund. The book we were discussing, a collection of essays, ranged widely across issues of constitutionalism, economics, and, and so on. And in recent weeks, AEI has published a few essays by one of my colleagues, Jay Cost, that takes a closer look at Madison's thought on the Bank of the United States. It's a fascinating set of essays. We'll link it in the show description, and I encourage you to take a look. And I'm so glad to be joined for a discussion today by my colleague, Jay. Jay Cost is the Gerald R. Ford Visiting Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on elections, politics, and public opinions. He's a columnist for National Review and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He's written in a variety of places, and I'm proud to say that I was one of his original readers of the Horse Race Oh, blog. wow. <laughs> I've been reading it for a long time, Jay, and I'm, I'm glad you can be here. As we'll see in this discussion, Dr. Cost's interests are focused on civic republicanism in the United States with an emphasis on the theory of James Madison. He's written a few books, starting with Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party and Now Threatens the American Republic. He published that in 2012, followed by a book titled A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of Political Corruption. His most recent book, published in 2018, is titled The Price of Greatness, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the Creation of American Oligarchy. And the essays we'll be discussing are clearly drawn from his research of the study of, of Madison and, and Hamilton. We'll get to that book in a little while, but let's start with these essays. Jay, welcome. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Jay, as you describe in the first of these two essays, the things that Hamilton and Madison agreed upon and the things that ultimately led to their famous disagreements, you make a fascinating point that Madison and Hamilton and Federalists 10, 11, and 12 are all grappling with the problem of faction in the newly proposed federal government. So they agree on the problem, but they have profoundly different approaches to solving that. Could you describe that? Sure. You know, the problem of faction was something that was on everybody's mind in the United States of America in the 1780s. And the big reason for that was that the country was, in many respects, still just a country on paper. In 1787, everybody who was of the age of maturity, 21 years old, all of them would have been born as subjects of George III. Moreover, the country was severely disjointed in ways that we can't in today cannot even begin to appreciate, but were the dominant feature of American life during that time would be, for instance, if you were a merchant in Boston, you would have more reasons to engage people in London than you would people in Charleston, South Carolina. So there was economic, there was a lack of economic diversification. On top of that, you had different religions. Now, admittedly, and again, this is one of those things that in today's mindset, everything at first glance, you wouldn't think it would be as big a deal to have, say, Anglicans and Baptists. Nowadays, you'd think, well, what's the big difference? But in Virginia in the 1780s, there was a huge difference. 
right? You had the Anglicans, you had the Congregationalists, you had the Quakers, you had the Lutherans. I mean, all of these groups are very, this is a time when disagreements between Protestant sects was much more salient than they are today. And then on top of that, it was really a multilingual society as well, right? And you had people in New York who spoke Dutch and you had large German populations in Pennsylvania. And then in the back country, you had the Scots-Irish who were, you know, spoke English, but were separated by the mountains. So this was the time of real diversity within the United States and diversity in ways that our contemporary categories, where we think of things mostly through the lens of race is not going to pick up the extreme diversity of the United States during that time. So most of the major thinkers within the nationalist movement, Madison and Hamilton being sort of the preeminent intellectuals of the time, are going to be concerned with how do we forge a nation out of these diverse factions? Madison and Hamilton, as you suggested, Adam, they take different approaches, or at least their emphases are different. And you can see this in juxtaposing Madison's Federalist 10 to Hamilton's 11 and 12. Madison in Federalist 10 envisions the government almost like a referee in a sporting event. The job of the government is going to be to call the plays fairly, without partiality, right? The ref is supposed to be neutral between the Patriots and the Steelers, right? He's there to just arbitrate the disputes. And so Madison's chief agenda in Federalist 10 is to how are we going to construct a government that can act like a fair referee when it's in fact government is run by people who are not themselves impartial, right? And so Madison's solution in Federalist 10 is a robust, diverse political society that brings in a multitude of factions that will sort of check each other so that the final result will be something approximating fairness. That's sort of Madison's brilliant idea in Federalist 10. Now, Hamilton has, it's not to say that Hamilton would disagree with this per se, but Hamilton's approach in 11 and 12 is different. Whereas Madison, if you sort of envision Madison as the referee, Hamilton envisions government almost like the head coach, right? So the head coach takes, you know, there's 50 some odd players on a football team. They play different positions. They have different skill sets. The job of the head coach is to coordinate their efforts for a shared goal, right? Which would be victory, All right? That's how Hamilton sort of envisions government in 11 and 12. And the shared goal that H Hamilton believes links all peoples together is their own prosperity. So Hamilton sees the job of government in sort of dealing with the factions within the United States is to create the basis for shared prosperity. And how is Hamilton going to do that? Well, in, in, you know, 11 sort of lays out this groundwork of this vision of shared prosperity and 12 really delivers the idea of commerce and by implication economic integration. And Hamilton's got this great line where he talks about, you know, the husbandmen and the mechanic who have so through history have apparently had different interests and irreconcilable interests, but in a commercial republic where prosperity is emphasized, their interests will be seen to be reconcilable. Now, in your, and we'll talk about your book later, but in, in the introduction to your book, you make a great point in trying to capture what Madison and Hamilton agreed on in general, liberalism, republicanism, 
nationalism. But they have all three of these issues are, are forefront in their mind, but the way they go about achieving all of them is what ultimately divides them. And the divisions come quickly in the first Washington administration where Hamilton is serving as Treasury Secretary, Madison in the House of Representatives. As Hamilton begins to produce these reports on public credit, on manufacturing, he starts to describe a country that Madison doesn't recognize in terms of the scope of power and the way it allocates power to certain interest groups in the, within the country, right? That's right. That's right. So between January of 1790 and December of 1791, Hamilton writes three major reports. The report on public credit, the second one, which is commonly called the report on a national bank, and the third one is the report on manufacturers. These documents are extraordinary in their erudition and their penetrating analysis of the United States of America. And just, it's a testament to Hamilton's productiveness. Jefferson, fighting Hamilton in these cabinet battles, Jefferson complained to Madison that Hamilton was the Federalist Party, that the Federalists didn't have the numbers in the population, but they had Hamilton, who was, as Jefferson called him, a host unto himself. And it's extraordinary that Hamilton was able to put so much together, especially in light of the fact that this is not long after the Constitutional Convention, Hamilton writing, you know, 50 some odd Federalist papers and then defending the Constitution at the New York Ratifying Convention. It's just extraordinary the amount of work that he was able to do. And what we see in these three reports is Hamilton fleshing out the vision that he had hinted at in Federalist 11 and 12. This would be a commercially integrated nation where, number one, that debt certificates or the public debt would function like currency because this was an age well before there was dollar bills didn't exist. And, or at least if they did, they were basically had no value because they were printed by the states themselves. So this would be the debt would serve as a national uniform currency. The bank was a sort of a public-private institution in the sense that it would hold federal tax reserves, but it would also engage in fractional reserve lending so that the government tax reserves would basically function as a spur to generate private credit. And then the report on manufacturers, the, the impulse there was to create a diversified economy. So Hamilton is talking about you know, economic integration through currency and then through the Bank of the United States and then diversification through the report on manufacturers. Just brilliant. Just, I mean, I'm a Madison guy at my core, but Hamilton is just, it's amazing what he was able to come up with. And in so many respects, you look at the the course of American economic policy between up until the Great Depression, and you can see particularly the Republican economic agenda was Hamiltonian in its basic orientation. The problem for Madison is not the goals per se, but the means by which Hamilton was going to pursue this. Because the people who were going to be advantaged in the short term by Hamilton's program were going to be the holders of the public debt. And the public debt during the course of the war and following the war, the public debt tended to migrate to the eastern cities. 
which makes sense when you consider that you know wealth such as it was in the south was primarily tied up in land so somebody like george washington would have been one of the wealthiest people in the united states of america but he was always sort of struggling to pay his bills because he didn't have hard cash land is not a liquid asset so the debt tended to be concentrated in the eastern cities and hamilton and this is an important point as well is that because that faith in the government was generally so low before the creation of the Constitution, the Eastern creditors were able to acquire these debt certificates for pennies on the dollar, some of them for as low as 15 cents on the dollar, and usually purchased from veterans who had been paid in these worthless debt certificates that he, they needed to unload them because they needed cash for you know foodstuffs and supplies and farming equipment and stuff. So the debt tended to be concentrated in the big cities of the East. And by big, I mean, relatively speaking, we're talking Boston and Philadelphia and then increasingly New York City. And Hamilton's program was basically delivering windfall profits to these handful of Eastern creditors is what he was doing. Now, Hamilton had good reasons for that, but Madison's objection was in the primary and I would say most persuasive objective was, wait a minute, this is a republic the benefits and burdens of government should be distributed equally. 95% of our people are farmers, and you're telling me we don't have anything to offer them in any of these economic programs. That was the sort of the foundational critique of Madison's argument against Hamilton. And then over the course of the decade, it, it's elaborated into this really, in historical retrospect, this sort of fanciful conspiracy theory where Hamilton is not really a true Republican, but he's a secret monarchist. And, and a lot of that had to do with just Madison's reference points would take him to the early sort of commercial era in England in the early 1700s and sort of view that Hamilton was bribing the legislature with, you know, benefits to get them to vote against their constituents. And Madison looked at this and said, ah, this is how the Hanoverian monarchs managed to control parliament even after the Glorious Revolution. Hamilton is looking to do the same thing. And oh, yes, I remember from the Constitutional Convention, he wasn't much of a Republican to begin with. Ipso facto, he's trying to destroy the American government. I mean, Madison and Jefferson take this in a very extreme sort of partisan direction. But at the real point of contact, the beef is about fairness. Yeah, you say in the essay, you say, sitting in the background of Madison's theory about the bank is Madison's general concern for the judicious distribution of political power. And that's really the thrust of, of the two essays is that that informed both Madison's constitutional vision and then Madison's view of policy, prudential policymaking under that constitution, the judicious allocation of political power, and thus one of the key faults of the bank is that it would give enormous political power, a disproportionate amount of power to a small set of hands. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting from my own intellectual trajectory here is that I became very interested in the Bank of the United States in the course of writing my second book, which was a history of political corruption. And, and that book sort of starts with the bank in just sort of very general terms. But as I sort of worked my way through the book, and the last substantive chapter on the book was on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And I was really struck that the organization of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was very similar 
to the organization of the Bank of the United States. And the problems of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were very similar to the problems that the bank, especially the bank in its second iteration, ironically, the bank that was chartered by none other than James Madison in 1816, but that bank had a lot of overlapping problems with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And it's this idea that when the government distributes policy benefits, it is also very possibly distributing political power. So probably the best analog to this would be, again, to think about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. What was, what was the government trying to do with Fannie and Freddie? The government had a very noble purpose, which was to promote home ownership. And to do that, it wanted to encourage the creation of a secondary marketplace for mortgages so that banks would be encouraged to do more lending. And so created these public corporations. And the advantage for the government was that the corporations didn't require any financing. What the government did was it basically allocated its credit, which is an off the book expense. You know, the credit of the United States can be spread around without requiring the increase of taxes. And it didn't do this explicitly, but it did it implicitly. By creating these public corporations, the government was implying that if something bad happened, the government would take responsibility for them. And this enabled Fannie and Freddie basically to corner the market on the secondary mortgages, which in a, it had a lot of good effects. The problem, though, is that that policy benefit was very, very valuable. I think Peter Wallison, you know, who did remarkable research for AEI years before the financial market was able to place a price tag in the tens of billions of dollars every year, the sort of implicit federal backing. And this was translated into Fannie and Freddie through their profits, right? Because they were able to basically corner the market because of this backing, they reaped enormous profits. And Fannie and Freddie were able to take just a very small portion of that profit and plow it back into the political system in all sorts of creative ways to make sure that its government subsidy persisted. And so in a sense, the government kind of became on the hook for Fannie and Freddie. Something similar happened with the Bank of the United States because the Bank of the United States, it was similar in the sense that it had a implicit federal backing, even though it was owned privately, there was a belief that the government would come in and bail out the bank should trouble arise. And so after the bank is chartered in 1791, there's this mad scramble for bank stock and a handful of speculators, one of whom is an insider, William Dewar, basically works behind the scenes to corner the market on bank stock. And the price of the bank stock gets inflated, inflated, inflated through the summer of 1791 until finally hits a wall and it collapses. That's when Hamilton has to go in sort of through the back door. He goes in through the Bank of New York and he uses the sinking fund that had been created to retire the government debt. He instructs William Seaton, who was the president of the Bank of New York, to use the sinking fund to buy government debt from the bulls, right? So basically, Hamilton establishes a kind of put there to stabilize the market. But sure enough, in the winter of 1792, you know, Hamilton had created a moral hazard. In the winter of 1792, Dewar plunges back into the market and creates another panic that is the last panic, and probably because Dewar was actually ruined and he spent the last couple years of his life in debtor's prison. But there's an in interesting illustration here in this sort of 
reciprocal relationship that begins between the government and the owners of the public debt. Hamilton had wanted to employ the owners of the public debt for these grand public purposes, and he had, but the owners of the public debt in turn were able to employ the government to maximize their profits. By the summer of 1792, Madison has become acutely aware of this. He writes this letter to Jefferson complaining that the stock jobbers, which is basically, you know, his derisive term for these speculators had become the praetorian band of the government at once its tool and its tyrant. And I think that's probably the best criticism ever rendered of the Hamiltonian system. It's unfortunate he never put that in a public essay, but you can find it. It's in his correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. And I think it's a really apt description of the problem with public-private partnerships such as this. And it's a problem that continues to exist to this day, which is why I think you know, there's still lessons to be learned from the experience of the Bank of the United States. Well, and another problem with the bank that you identified, and one that has resonance all the way to this day, again, in terms of, say, Fannie and Freddie, was that the bank itself, with its power and its wealth and influence, was able to, or at least the head of the bank, Biddle, was able to actively campaign against Jackson and Jacksonian politics and actually employ the weight and force of the bank as a political counterweight in favor of Clay and against Jackson, thus turning, again, what had been a grant of power and, and, and influence and resource from the government against the political system itself. Yes, that's true. It's very ironic because the bank after Dewar is basically cashiered, the bank is extraordinarily well behaved for the rest of its, its lifespan. So basically all of its, its 20 year charter, it's very well behaved. And a lot of credit for that belongs to Albert Gallatin, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Gallatin was sort of the premier Republican intellectual on matters of finance. And I still don't think he gets the credit that he deserves, even though there has been some good biographies of him written. I don't think Gallatin gets his full credit, but the second bank is chartered in 1816. And it's by Madison, which we'll get to by Madison. And it is not as well run. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, to be perfectly honest, the second generation of Republican politicians were just second raters. Madison had always struggled in his cabinet to find good people and really never found anybody except Monroe. And likewise, you just go down the list. And until men like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster come into their own, there's this real sort of gap in statesmanship in the United States of America. So the, the second bank is very poorly run. And it is a tool of corruption in the sense that it's it becomes the sort of way for local politicians to sort of line their own pockets. Like for instance, in Maryland, and you mentioned McCullough v. Maryland, McCullough was actually the cashier of the Second Bank of the United States, who's basically running a massive grift along with the owners of the, the president of the bank. And this would have been sort of in Roger Taney's political universe. Taney is responsible not just for the worst Supreme Court decision in history, but he's also was pretty much a hack, a hack Maryland politician. So the bank was very corrupt, but and the corruption of the bank makes the Panic of 1819 worse because the bank had been lending very recklessly, and then the panic comes along, which is due to forces outside of anybody's control. The problem is, is that the bank, in its recklessness, has to contract its issuances, which is exactly the opposite of what you want during an economic downturn. And so finally, in 1822, I think they finally get a bank president by the name, as you mentioned, Nicholas Biddle who, like Hamilton, is an economic visionary of the first order. I mean, it's really during Biddle's tenure in the 1820s that the second bank begins to look like 
a central bank. A Biddle is able to carefully, gently corral the sort of the state banks that had sprung up almost like weeds in all of the states, these reckless state banks. Biddle kind of gently brings them to heel. The problem is, is that in 1828, Andrew Jackson is elected president and Jackson hates the bank. And so destroys the bank and then removes the deposits from the bank. And Biddle not only uses the bank's vast economic resources, because again, it's like a central bank, only it's privately owned. Imagine the Federal Reserve was a for-profit institution, and you can imagine how rich it would be. Biddle uses the wealth of the bank, not only he campaigns in 1832 against and so he actually actively enters the political sphere. But then obviously Henry Clay is like a lamb to the slaughter that year. And in the next year, when Jackson starts removing the deposits from the Bank of the United States, Biddle begins to contract credit, which obviously he had to do to some degree because he wasn't sure what Jackson was going to do. But Biddle's letters indicate that the extent to which he did that was to send a political message to the United States of America. You need this bank, and here's a recession to show you how important we are. And this is very reminiscent of Madison's initial warnings about the bank, which was that in his speeches in the House all the way back in 1791, objecting to the bank, he warned that that these sorts of institutions can become political machines with power far outside their numbers. And again, that sort of, to bring this sort of discussion around, that is really the question at hand here is that who governs in the United States of America, right? The Biddle was trying to govern not by virtue of the supporters that he had in the population, but by his economic influence. And this is something that Madison had profoundly objected to all the way back at the very beginning of the country's origins. Now, on that point, we referred earlier to, to a notion of Republican balance, and that's a point you explore in your book. But when we start talking about Madison's worries about the bank having disproportionate or power disproportionate to its political support, I wonder, well, just by sheer popular vote, debtors are always going to outnumber creditors, right? That's just a basic function of our economic system. There's always going to be more sort of populist power on the side of the debtors than on the, the financial institutions. And of course, that's why Jackson rose to power or one of the reasons why. Isn't it a good thing in a Madisonian system where we don't just allocate everything out by sheer popular vote and we have things like the United States Senate and other counter-majoritarian forces why wasn't the bank itself just another counter-majoritarian force that wielded some power but not total power in a Madisonian system? Right. That's a good observation. I would say it depends on how we understand Madison, the, the true Madison, because the Madison of the Federalist is not the true Madison in a certain sense. What you're describing would be closer, I would say, to the views of the Governor Morris. Mm -hmm. Right, who had sort of at the Constitutional Convention suggested that wealth needs a per permanent place of, you know, protection. Or in Alexander Hamilton, these would be the arguments that sort of they had promulgated was, as you said, right, that debtors will always outnumber the creditors, and so therefore men of property need some sort of special protection. Madison's original theory was that. While it is true that debtors will outnumber creditors, the debtors themselves will be so diverse and that there will be just be so many cleavages in society that the debtors as a coalition would never be able to overwhelm the creditors. That was the thinking. 
Now, beyond that, Madison would have had ways in which intemperance of the debtor class might be cooled by, for instance, the process of election. But the Senate, as it exists today, is not something that he favored, at least initially. Now, by the time he had become an old man, he becomes sort of the greatest sort of advocate for the Constitution as it was constructed. But it's not for nothing that by that point, the Constitution had been functioning properly for 30 years. But Madison in 1787, and he did, in fact, hate the United States Senate as it existed, believed that it would be detrimental to a well-functioning Republican government because it would just port the misbehavior of the states under the Articles of Confederation into the new government. The original Madisonian Senate was to be apportioned according to population. And the sort of the check on the intemperance of the people would be that the senators were to be nominated by the state governments and then approved by the House of Representatives. Hmm. So the way the kind of the the architecture in the original Virginia plan was going to be a purely proportional system where the centerpiece would have been the popularly elected House, and then it would be checked in turn by these institutions, the Senate, the President, and then the what he called the Council of Revision that would themselves ultimately be bottomed on the House, but would be separated by a degree from the people. So that would be where the refinement is. So in the original Madisonian vision and in his policy vision, he would say that the benefits and burdens have to be distributed equally. And I think we can get into this in a bit, but as we see here in the Madison's later years, you can see how he takes this idea of distributing the burdens equally and the benefits equally into a system of political economy that Clay would eventually term the American system as sort of his alternative. You know, on this question of Madison's worry about monopoly, concentrated economic power and its relationship to concentrated political power, your essays point back to a real formative experience for him, which was the experience of, of the Anglican Church in Virginia. Could you talk a little bit about that, about how that informed his view? of concentrated power? Yes, yes. So Madison was born and raised in the Anglican Church. I think that his local bishop would say that he was a bad Anglican. But I think Madison's response would be, well, you're a bad church. The Anglican Church in Virginia was, in his view, a corrupt institution. He thought that it bred indolence in the pastoral class and ignorance in the laity. When Jefferson went to the College of William and Mary in his youth. Madison, however, did not. He went to Princeton, which was a very Whiggish Presbyterian school and very much Whiggish. And it was Presbyterian very much so in its use of church organization and the sort of view that the Anglican organization was corrupt. And Madison inherited a lot of these views. And he comes back to Virginia after having graduated from Princeton, and sees this mistreatment of the Baptists. The Baptists were a growing movement during this period. So we're sort of, this is after, this would be like a generation after the First Great Awakening, but this would be baptism is proliferating, particularly in the Virginia countryside, and the Baptists are mistreated. They're mistreated by the government. And Madison looks at this and says, well, why is this happening, right? This is a, this is a state that's been founded on, you know, freedom, right? We've thrown off our oppressors. And Madison looks at the Anglican clergy, 
right? Who has an economic incentive to keep baptism to a minimum? The Anglican clergy does because the Anglican church is sponsored by the state. And in his view, Madison's view, this state sponsorship of the Anglican church has corrupted both the church itself and the government. And the church is violating the rights of the Baptist minority by, you know, all of these onerous laws, like prohibiting Baptists from preaching out outside of certain places, throwing them in jail. Ultimately, so it's corrupted the government, but it's also corrupted the Anglican church because the church ministers don't feel obligated to do a good job. Otherwise, they'll lose parishioners to the Baptists. They don't need to worry about that because they're going to have, they're basically state employees, right? So this is sort of Madison's first experience with the problem of government expanding beyond being a neutral arbiter of interests, right? Government, in this this case, the argument in favor of an established church, which would have been made by Edmund Pendleton, and then in a modified form by Patrick Henry, would have been, you know, we need good, virtuous citizens, and that requires Christianity and religiosity and temperance among the people. And so the government has an interest in supporting the church. And Madison's argument basically boiled down to anytime the government moves beyond being an arbiter of interest and playing favorites, even if it's for a good purpose, the danger becomes corruption, not just of the beneficiaries of the munificence, but of the government itself. And this was an argument that he laid out in a detailed fashion in 1784. And in a lot of respects, his argument against the establishment of the Anglican church previews his arguments against this sort of establishment of the creditors of the government in a position of power. It's very similar in a lot of respects to the argument. Now, we've been talking so much about Madison's reasons for opposing the bank, but as we noted a little while ago, Madison ultimately does as president sign off on the second bank of the United States. And your essays offer some insight on how that action how that is a window into both his constitutionalism and also his view of policy. I just want to say for our audience who might have missed it, a few episodes ago, we were joined by Will Bode, professor of law from the University of Chicago, who wrote a, we discussed his article on on constitutional liquidation, Madison's term from Federalist 37. But as you point out, even when Madison sets aside the constitutional questions about whether a bank is or is not constitutional, that even when you set aside the constitutional questions, that those have been sort of resolved by experience, that Madison still has has views on policy that we ought to take seriously. That's right. So the way to appreciate, you know, it's unfortunate in a lot of respects. I mean, it's just so unfortunate that Alexander Hamilton was killed by Aaron Burr in 1804. It's just extraordinary that he threw his life away the way he did. It makes for good theater, though. It does make for good theater. But, you know, it's unfortunate because Hamilton, you know, Hamilton was a young man. And if he had been more prudent and had not done what he did against Burr, he would have been alive in 1816. And he could have said, I told you so. (laughs) I told you we needed the bank. Actually, if he had said that, would Madison have said, you're right, I was wrong? Oh, no, never, never. Madison never admitted he was wrong about anything. So what would he have said? I actually love this thought exercise. What, what, would, what would Madison have said at that moment? Madison would have, and indeed he did say when people asked him about this in retirement, it's different because Hamilton was a monarchist and I'm a Republican. <laughs> That's what he would have said. So as he comes around to the bank then, 
What should we learn from that experience? Well, what we should learn, first of all, is that Hamilton, Hamilton was right. The experience of the United States during the War of 1812 was disastrous because they, they let the bank charter lapse in 1811. And what, there were so many problems that, that came up as a consequence of that. New problems, problems that did not even exist when Hamilton was around. One of the, the biggest challenge during the War of 1812 was when the bank was originally chartered, there were, I think it was only the third bank in the entire country. There was the Bank of North America, there was the Bank of New York, and maybe there was a bank in Boston. So maybe there were four. That was it. But in the intervening 20 years, there had been this proliferation of state banks that popped up. And the Bank of the United States, because it it was a depositor for tax revenue. Many times people would pay their taxes in banknotes, in state banknotes. So the, the Bank of the United States was in effect a creditor to the state banks. And so when the state banks behaved irresponsibly or threatened to, the bank could call on these loans and force the bank to begin contracting their, its issuance. And this is how the Bank of the United States sort of evolves into becoming the central bank, right? And without the bank around in 1811, the state banks go crazy. They issue notes far in excess of their specie reserves. On top of that, you have a war going on, and which is just draining specie. And so ultimately, you have to, the banks basically end up having to suspend specie payments. In other words, I can't give you hard cash for your banknote. I'm sorry, please go away. This was an enormous problem for the government during the war. Because with the banks having suspended specie payments, if, you, if the federal government had deposits, tax revenue deposits in a bank in, say, South Carolina, but it had to make purchases in New York, it could not take the notes from the South Carolina bank and send them up to New York because the New York bank was not going to accept the South Carolina bank. So imagine like you have in the middle of a war, which by the way, and again, this is a war fought on American territory. So it's like, oh, here come the British down south through Plattsburgh. We better buy some, we need guns. And oh, well, we can't buy guns, right? This is a disaster. And then on top of that, right, Hamilton's original argument for the bank was the government will be able to borrow money from the bank in a pinch, right? And without the Bank of the United States to loan money to the government, Gallatin had to go on to private credit markets. And this problem is, is that all the hard cash was up in New England and New England hated the war. So they weren't going to loan. I mean, basically, we paid we paid for the War of 1812 on interest rates that approach a credit card is basically what we did. It's really extraordinary. So Madison, after the war, has to acknowledge that the the only way we're going to re- restore specie payments is we we have to recharter our bank. We don't have any other solutions. You know, on on all the logistical practical problems that arose in the in the the gap between the two banks, I just want to say just editorialize for a second. In the discussions that we lawyers sometimes have about McCullough versus Maryland, including some of the discussions surrounding the book that AEI just put out. Lawyers are often dissatisfied with John Marshall's discussion of the necessary and proper clause argument. They say Marshall never really shows concretely why a bank of the United States was necessary or proper. Marshall sketches out this test in very broad terms, but he never really nails it down. And the point I've tried to make, including that my own contribution to that book, 
was that actually he didn't need to say much because they had just lived through the experience that when Matt, when Marshall says in very general terms, you need a bank of the United States so that you can move financial resources across the continent and support an army. He wasn't, he wasn't hypothesizing. He was talking about the near-death experience that the United States had just endured years earlier. That felt experience, it made concrete any kind of theory that the Federalists, including Marshall, had in favor of the bank's necessity. And that it's, you know, an unawareness of that aspect of history, I think sometimes leaves lawyers with less of an understanding of what the case was really about. So when the bank bill returns to Madison, and correct me if I'm wrong, he vetoes it on on non-constitutional grounds and then approves a a later version, whatever constitutional qualms he might have, he treats those as settled by the decades of political experience and and popular acceptance of the bank. But there remain the, the prudential questions about how a bank will be run. And as you point out in your second essay, and we've already said a little bit, those lessons ought not be overshadowed by the constitutional ones. And those, as much as anything, are the lessons we ought to take with us as we think about policies today on issues ranging from financial institutions to health. You, you point out healthcare as another example. And so on all these areas where the government tries to partner with private industry in a way that often deforms politics itself. Yeah, and deforms private industry as well, oftentimes. Right. I mean, a good example of that would be the medical services industry. You know, the medical services industry did not want Medicare in 1965. The medical services industry had been the crucial, the insuperable objection to Truman's plans and even to John F. Kennedy's mild efforts to basically create what we today call Medicare, Medicaid. And it was only really, if you look at the original you know, amendments to the 1965 Social Security Act, which the medical services industry did still did not want, but it was basically a blank check to the medical services industry. And what we've gone from an era just 50 years ago, where they were private, they didn't want the government involved. And now today, the medical services industry is the second largest lobbying group broadly defined behind only dun, da, 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 financial services. And there's a lesson here. It's a lesson of, prudent, as you said, prudential statesmanship. This is not a libertarian argument where, oh, this just goes to show that we shouldn't be doing things like this. That's not what I'm saying, right? Especially in the context of the 1960s. Like if you look at the way nowadays, senior citizens are the wealthiest age cohort because they've lived through the entire post-war economic boom. But people in 19, a 65-year-old person in 1965 would have lived through World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II, and, you know, would have been vulnerable. And there is, you know, an argument, and I think it's an argument, frankly, pretty much everybody except the most libertarian among us admit to, is that we have to do something for these people. We can't just leave these people like, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? That's just life. And this is uh, our constitution is only about protecting rights. So, you know, tough. We don't believe in things like we have to do something, right? The challenge is we have to be careful in the way that we do things. And it's just alluded to a moment ago, Adam, like this sort of what I, I call in my book, The Price of Greatness, I call it the strategy of mediation. We employ this all over the place. And we've employed it since the bank, frankly, and even before the bank, to fight you know, the Revolutionary War 
the government did not just start farming, right? It bought food from private farmers. This is what media, the government does not provide these services itself. It subcontracts it. So a good juxtaposition would be to juxtapose the veterans system of hospitals with Medicare, right? So for veterans who go to the doctor and they go to a VA doctor is actually employed by the government is actually works at a government facility, as opposed to people who are just senior citizens, they go to private doctors who then get paid by the government, right? So that's the, that's what mediation is. And we employ this in all sorts of things. We do this in defense contracting. We do it in financial services, right? This is what, this is how we do all sorts of things. Probably the most recent relevant example would have been in dealing with the coronavirus epidemic, what did we do? They created PPP, right? We're not going to actually keep these people on the payroll, we the government, but we're going to give businesses money to keep them on the payroll, right? This is a great example of mediation. It's a strategy that's commonly employed. The problem is, is that there is a fungibility between politics and money. It's not reducible merely to questions of campaign finance, although that is included within the problems. It is just sort of insofar as the government becomes, it outsources essential tasks to private groups. It comes to depend upon those groups for the maintenance of those services. And the groups, therefore, are in a position to bargain for Oh, well, I need you to go out and do this and I'll pay you $50. Okay, so let's say just, you know, you do that. Like a good example would probably be like, you know, a lawn care company comes and says, I'll, I'll mow your lawn for you for 20 bucks. And they do that for three months and I get used to having a nice lawn. And then they come back again and say, okay, well, your introductory rate's up. Now I want 50 bucks. And it's like, well, I need my lawn mode. I'm not going to do it myself because, you know, I'm lazy or whatever. I need my lawn mode. And so what did, the, what did the lawn care company do? It took my dependence upon them and extracted a little bit of extra money. And this happens all over the place. And it's corruption in, from defined from like a Madisonian perspective of like, you know, government should be very strictly intended for public purposes. But it's not corruption in the way we think of it, like cops and robbers or good guys versus bad guys, right? The American Medical Association is looking out for the interests of its members, which is precisely what it's supposed to do. Even Fannie and Freddie and their recklessness, what were, who were they responsible to? They were responsible to their stockholders, which is exactly what a corporate board is supposed to do. They're supposed to be responsible for their members. This is not a question of good guys versus bad guys. This is a question of organizing power relations in such a way to make sure that the government doesn't get the short end of the stick. Well, we've covered a lot of territory here and and so do your essays. I really want to encourage our audience to look up these two essays at AEI. The first is titled A Powerful Machine, Part 1, James Madison, the First Bank of the United States and the Dangers of Public-Private Partnership. And the second part of A Powerful Machine is titled Lessons from the Death and Rebirth of the Bank of the United States. I hope folks will also tune into your own podcast. You have a podcast with Ricochet titled Constitutionally Speaking. Your last book, we discussed quite a lot, The Price of Greatness. What are you working on next? Yeah, well, I am actually just finishing up a manuscript for Biography of James Madison. So that is going to be coming out in the fall of 2021. And it's really a biography that's focused on his political thought, his really his life in politics and what we can learn from it in terms of what did it mean to be Madisonian? Because again, like we've talked about this, right? At first blush, 
it appears as though Madison changes his mind about the Bank of the United States, and in many respects he does. But at the same time, there's sort of an underlying consistency to his political thought that is not, oftentimes not obvious on a first view. So that's sort of what the book, what I'm trying to do is to sort of like identify the thread of his political life, which runs from 1776 when he is elected a member of the Virginia Convention until his death in 1836. What are the, what are the themes, and not just in the broad brushstrokes, but like what, what were the distinctively Madisonian ideas that animated this really remarkable 60 years in public service? Well, it sounds wonderful, and I, and I hope we'll be able to convince you to come back then. Do you have a title yet or a release date? Well, the title, I'm tentatively calling it The Father of the Constitution, but I haven't, uh, my editor hasn't gotten back to me on that one, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Father of the Constitution, Life and Times of James Madison is sort of one, and I'm, I'm going to sort of play it up like he's not precisely the father of the Constitution understood narrowly as just the 4,600 words in the document. But he is the father of American constitutionalism, which is sort of this idea of government structured where the people, where sovereignty is housed within the people at large and only the people at large and with the expectation of rigorous, relentless, fair play. These are sort of the two basic Madisonian ideas that I, I think define his career in politics. And I think you say, well, what's the essence of the Constitution? I think that's, that's its essence, at least from my perspective. So. That's sort of the kind of way in which I'm headed. The release date tentatively is the fall of 2021. Well, that's wonderful. And, and I, based on our conversation, I almost wonder if your next book will be on Gallatin. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Gallatin. There have been some good biographies of Gallatin out recently, so I don't think he necessarily needs another one right now. But I would love an opportunity to write about Gallatin and Henry Clay and these sorts of people who are kind of coming from the same general place of sort of like, we need the government to do big things, but we needed to do it in a fair and prudential way. The sort of like these Republicans, almost kind of post-Jeffersonian Republicans is what I would call them, like getting beyond Jefferson's very narrow vision of statecraft into a more capacious view of public policy, but with a real eye to like, we have to be fair. I'm fascinated by that. I think it's a historical debate and historical questions that really have a lot of salience today because I think people want, I think there's this widespread belief, I know I feel it, that I don't want a night watchman state, but I don't want the government to play favorites. And I feel like as an American, it's not unreasonable for us to expect both of those things. Well, as you continue to work through all of these themes, readers can find you again at National Review and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and of course, on AEI's website. Jay Cost, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Unprecedential.